Now, get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk650andkste.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Well, happy Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Get Growing on Talk650KSTE. Farmer Fred here, Fred Hoffman, UC Cooperative Extension Lifetime Master Gardener, garden columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel, the guy that does all the typing at farmerfred.com. All the ranting at the Farmer Fred Rant blog page at twitter.com slash tips. Lots of snark. And uh, what else? Uh, oh, there's Instagram. There's Pinterest. There's uh, the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page where there is always a garden dialogue going on. And there's also a clue for today's Garden Grappler that we'll have at 11 o'clock. And uh, I bet it'll be about trees because today's guest, tree consultant extraordinaire jeff gravish is here certified uh, arborist sales manager out at bothing treeland farms down in san joaquin county they're a wholesale grower of uh, trees shrubs perennials grasses and ferns and uh, they sell to your favorite nursery so you can usually find a lot of their product at uh, your favorite nursery jeff a pleasure to have you over here and uh, to uh, talk more about privacy screens and small trees, and whatever else is on your musical mind. Yeah, I would not say extraordinary. I'd say more ordinary or subordinary. Okay. The subordinary is a word. Suboptimal. Suboptimal, yeah. <laughs> okay. Inferior. Yeah. All right. But uh, we'll be answering uh, your questions, uh, be it tree or garden-related. 916-576-1578 here in the Sacramento uh, region. Uh, outside the area, 866-331-8255. Terry's running the board today. Hi, Terry. He'll be answering the phones. He'll be presiding over the Garden Grappler, making sure names and addresses match up with real live people. I was so thrilled. when Whenever I get a new winner on the Garden Grappler, when I get home and I'm filling out all the paperwork for it, and I see somebody that I, that isn't familiar I first of all make sure that their address is correct, so I'm not wasting a stamp to to mail them the prize. Okay, so I go on Google and, and check out the address to make sure it exists. Okay, we found a winner of most valuable home <laughs> that listens to the show. Most valuable home. Most valuable home. Because you know when you do a Google search for an address, not only does it point out where it oh, is, but it lists like Zillow, Zillow value. Or, okay, got or, it. Or all that. And uh, we had a winner last week who lives in Carmel. And uh, the last time that home sold was in 1997, and it sold for like $700,000. And today's market value is $4.5 million. Well, that's a good... Yeah. 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 So that's, uh, that, that's... You, can listen, you can listen to the garden show for, <laughs> yes. when you've got a house that's worth four point <laughs> something million. Yeah. But but the address did exist, and I sent yeah. I sent her her uh, pieces of paper, so I'm sure she was thrilled with that. So. Oh, that's <laughs> your you, the radio show deep goes all the way deep into Carmel, all the way down uh, Scenic Drive or with Seven Mile Drive or whatever that is. I think you're, you've got short miles there, but that's yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, but uh, hey, we're just simple farm folk here, and <laughs> and. Uh, I have a question about what happened at Bothing Treeland Farm in the last month. Did the hard freeze affect your inventory? Yeah, yeah. We we put a lot of our material. First of all, we we sell, you know, we sell all across the Western United States, but we sell a lot of material into the Bay Area, and some of that material. I, I, I have to use the word material because it's that's the way I describe yeah. the product. That's but the way anyways, you guys talk. Yeah, yeah. It's it's frost tender. So we have uh, houses out of the nursery. We put everything inside the houses we can. And then uh, what doesn't get outside the house just has to suffer. 
and it'll some of it died back, some of it died completely, but we just have to take that chance. We just can't enclose everything. Yeah, and uh, I've been hearing from a lot of people who have had problems with their citrus trees. Now you're not in the you're thankfully not in the citrus business. No, actually, we're sitting right in the quarantine for the citrus uh, the citrus quarantine. They moved the citrus quarantine right around us, yeah. so that we cannot ship any citrus out of uh, our nursery. Okay, I didn't know you handled citrus. We buy citrus. Oh, okay, all right. We we buy it as a courtesy for landscape yeah. contractors, but now they decided that we're going to put the co- the quarantine right around us, right around our border. So so it goes up to Jack Tone or what? Yeah, I, I, if you listen to the description, you if you read the description, you could not figure out exactly what it was. But if you look at the map, you'll see it follows the border of the nursery. Oh wow! Yeah, when you start looking at these Asian citrus psyllid quarantine zones uh, to stop the spread of HLB in citrus trees, and you actually dig down into these maps, you realize that these borders, one side of a street may be in the quarantine zone, the other side of the street, no. Exactly. Or follows a creek bed, and the creek bed meanders. Yeah. I mean, it's just, they're very, somebody had to walk the entire thing and look at it. But anyway, I've been getting these questions from people who have been describing symptoms of uh, what's happening to their, especially their Meyer lemons over the past couple of weeks, which include losing a lot of leaves and uh, fruit that was on the tree, but it's turning black. And boy, oh boy, that just sounds like freeze damage to me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, We had a, all of our magnolia salangianas, our saucer magnolias, were all in full bloom, looked beautiful. The day after the hard freeze, the, the flowers were all brown and black. That would explain all the brown salangianas I've been seeing around in the area. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I thought, wow, that's a... Who would want to buy that? That's a weird color to choose, a rust-colored flower. Yeah. No. And so when a contractor takes a you know, he's, he wants to put a nice magnolia salangian in, and, and, and the, so his customer sees the color and, and you know, how pretty it's yeah. going to be, and it's going to be a great tree for you, and then it's brown. It doesn't, uh, doesn't really make a sale very easily. Now, the good news is the tree is alive. The tree is alive, yeah. yeah. And they can survive you know, much colder than we were. What can't survive, though, are young citrus trees. And a lot of the citrus trees that I've been hearing about that have problems are very young, one year, two year, three year old, which means small trees, thin bark. And when you get a hard freeze where the temperature drops below 28 degrees for several hours, that can be a death to a tree that yeah. young. And same thing with landscape ornamentals. Right. I mean, the citrus is, is a, can be a landscape ornamental, so it's all sort of fits the same category. You've got thin bark mm-hmm. if, you, if the tree is dehydrated. Uh, you know, if you haven't, if it's, there's no amp, not ample moisture, right, yeah. um, just still cold air for a, a long period, you know, for an extended period of time, um, leaves burn, twigs die, twigs die back, bark damage, yeah. a lot of that you won't see for some time. And uh, be very wary, too, if you start seeing vertical cracks in your trunks of trees, because that might be a side effect of uh, the hard freeze we had, and it's like sun scald. I'll give you an example. There's a tree called a, a marina strawberry tree, yeah. Arbutus marina. Mm-hmm. We grow thousands of them. So several years ago, there was a real hard cold, hard frost, and we discovered uh, cracks at the base of the trunk. And the, the cracks were maybe five inches long, but they were just like little cleft cracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had, to, we had to dump a lot of trees. So now we cover them in insulation. At the trunk from branch down all the way, all the way to the soil, we cover it in a carpet insulation. So we hmm. basically c- uh, cover thousands of uh, that and Loris noblis both. We cover thousands of trees. Loris noblis in the cold, the bark will peel; it'll sort of shed off, and so and and you you lose a lot of the new the, before bark formation. You lose a lot of the the bark. 
local carpet store must have been thrilled with you. Oh, they love us. Yeah, yeah. we take every all scraps we can get. Yeah, and so but we have you know six foot length of carpet, you know all of you know it's in massive piles, and we have to go through and, and cover every one of them. That's a, a very good technique though for preserving the integrity of trunks of the tree. Is just when a hard freeze, especially, is predicted, is to get out there and wrap the trunk of the tree with whatever you have. It might be blankets, it might be surrounding it with hay, it might be piling up anything you can find, including old carpets. Yeah, carpet works really well for us because, you know, we've got labor. We can sit there and we can slice them up Um, for the homeowner. You know, I mean, if you're ripping out your carpet, save some pieces. But this works on single trunk trees very well. If you have a multi-trunk tree, Mm -hmm. you know, then it's it's more difficult. It's harder to wrap and enclose that unless you get a a cloth, like a a, a tape, a cloth that you can sort of, you know, can wrap around. You can buy... um, I believe you can buy commercial wraps. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so. oh, yeah, sure. Or even if you just wrapped it with newspaper or cardboard. Yeah, anything, yeah. Anything temporary yeah. just to protect it. Now, I would hope that by March 11th we have no more hard freezes for this year. Yeah, we're I, kind of hoping that, too, because yeah. we can't, you know, we're, we've got damage now. We've, you know, we more damage is going to be a problem. Yeah, uh, but um, if history is a guide, and I hope it is, uh, we should be out of, frost season here in Sacramento in the next uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, we think so. Yeah. That, that based upon all of the records we have, we think we, we should be good. Yeah. But then it's just been a, a weird year. Yeah, well. It's... And every year is going to be weird from now on, it seems. Thank you. Yes. Now we... Jeff Gravish is here. We'll take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll delve into the email you've been sending to Fred at FarmerFred.com and your calls, 916-576-1578 or toll-free 866-331-8255. It's Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. With Jeff Gravish from Bothing Treeland Farms. We're talking trees on this edition of the KF... Uh, where am I? Uh, Get Growing on KSTE. And... Um, We've been talking about spring flowering trees, about privacy screen trees, about trees that are good for small yards, small trees. Let's talk, Jeff, about common trees that I'm. some people consider them overplanted. Others uh, say, well, there's a reason it's overplanted is because it does so well here. And there is one tree in particular that some arborists just kind of hold their nose when they plant it. And that's the crepe myrtle. I knew that's the one you were going to mention. Yes. Well, it, it's a it flowers all summer long. It's a it's a good small tree. It doesn't get more than what twenty five or thirty feet, right? With a, maybe a fifteen twenty foot spread, right? If that, yeah, it does can get you know, sooty mold and aphids. Whenever you have an aphid or an insect pest named after you, yes, that there's a problem. So you have crepe myrtle aphids on crepe myrtles. Yeah, is it true that? There are some powdery mildew-resistant varieties of crepe myrtle. Yeah, the Indian tribe. Yeah. Crepe, it's a hybrid, so they, they call them, uh, here we go with Latin again, Lagostromia foreii. Foreii, okay. Foreii As hybrids. opposed to the indica. Yeah. Right. Indicas, if you see Lagostromia indica, and it, those be trees like Twilight Purple and mm-hmm. Cherokee, those are ones that can get mildew. If you see foreii, and they're, they're, they're called the Indian tribes. They were okay. developed by the, UC Ar- or the, the U.S. Arboretum. And so they'll have names of Indian tribes like Tuscarora, if you're into Indian tribes. Right. and you know Catawba. Catawba. 
uh, Muskogee. Yeah. You know, those are the three, the, th- the basics. Natchez, Muskogee, and Tuscora are those. So some of the first ones that came out, they're the basics. They're standards. They're used by landscape architects all over California. And, and, and a crepe myrtle is basically a sh- kind of a shrub. It's, it should be treated like a shrub on a, on a stick. I mean, it's, it's, it does best when it's cut back. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as an arbor, it, it's a, since it's a small tree, it, we grow them we grow them as a tree. We grow them with tech, you know, technical stuff. On here. a single stem. Yeah, and yeah. technical stuff. We grow them as a single liter, okay, just like right. we would a maple. Right. We're one of the few nurseries that do that because that is sort of an accepted practice for trees. But this tree doesn't be, care because the minute you plant it, it's going to grow into a round-headed tree. And most people want to cut them back because more, the, when you cut them back, you get more flowers. Yeah, at, a, at more of an eye level, too. Right. Right, and it also has the tendency because it wants to be a shrub. It's going to emanate branches from the base. It's going to sucker. It's just yeah. going to keep popping. And you just have to keep. You just have to work at it. But it's the reward you get for it because, especially these the Indian tribe crepe myrtles mm-hmm. have very big flower heads, much more than an indica does. The, the the other kind. So they have these very very large flower heads, especially in a nursery, of course, because we're feeding them and they're keeping them very happy. But they're they're just they're they're just. I think they're great trees. There's a lot of confusion, though, about how to prune a crepe myrtle tree. And the, the instructions can get kind of complicated about removing uh, anything uh, older than three years old and, and basically uh, doing more thinning than uh, heading back. Now, again, I, see, I look at it as sort of a, in its own category, or there's other trees sort of that category. Uh, the crepe myrtles I have in my yard, I cut back. I just cut them back and get new flowers, new new, new uh, growth on them. How far back do you cut them back? I cut them back to, to where the, the branches originated. It's sort of like a mulberry. I treat them like really? a mulberry. Yeah. Okay. Um, we, we prune crepe myrtles in the nursery uh, after the first bloom. We always have something blooming. So we always are cutting them back, and they'll get new blooms. And so you'll get two to three blooms easily in the summer if you, keep, if you prune them timely. But I, just, I don't treat it as a structural tree. I've got trees in my yard that I work at uh, that are um, – Structurally sound. I, I pay attention to the structural issues that need to be be uh, you know be watched when when pruning a tree and maintaining a large shade tree. Crepe myrtles, I don't. I just treat it as like I said, a shrub on a stick, or like a fatinia or anything else. You know, it just it's it, I just cut it back. I just I don't care about the structure. I don't worry about that. Now at this me because I, I've had some experience with it. Right. You know, for homeowners it might be different, but you see a lot of crepe myrtles that are cut back like a like a mulberry that are just stubbed all the way back to the to where the branches you know started. Ah, the one I see in my neighborhood, somebody cut it back to it's no more now than six or seven feet tall, and it's just the stubs of all the various branches. Yeah. I actually have that. I, I, I had some Tuscaroras that I planted, God, maybe 20 years ago, yeah. that um, I cut back to, they were probably 25 feet tall. I cut them back to 10 feet tall. Hmm. Just Just okay. chopped them off. All right. Now again, that that's that's heresy. <laughs> yes, I that's know. That's heresy. But this is a, a this is a tree that's just different to me. I, I just treat it differently. I treat it as a big sort of shrub, and I just um, I don't worry about. I'm not worried about it fa- failing structurally. So it it doesn't produce multiple leaders when you head it back that severely. Oh yeah. Oh, it does. Oh yeah. They're multi trunks. They're, yeah. they're multi trunk trees. Well, right. Yeah, but if you're if pruning it back to ten feet tall, and you've got all the stubs all along the branch work, mm. uh, the trunk. It, aren't each of those cuts going to produce two new branches that come out? Yeah, it'll be shrubby, but that's yeah. that's my goal. So I just want it to be very shrubby. I want to maintain the height. They got too tall. They were providing too much shade, 
and they have a tendency to, to, to you know, with the flower head so big, mm-hmm. on, a, on this type of crape myrtle, a Faurii, gets a lot of rank growth, a lot long branches, and then a big flower head, especially the Natchez, and it just weeps. Oh. The flowers are so heavy, so the tree starts to, to sort of you know, fall over. Some, some are more upright. Tuscarora mm-hmm. grows more upright. Muscogee grows sort of round. Natchez grows sort of wide, but they have huge flower heads, a lot of weight, and they just fall over. They, you know, they weep. So I just, you know, cut it back. I, I, that's something I don't worry about arboriculturally. I just, uh, you, you know, you'll get new growth on it. I cut it back, and uh, I can maintain the size on it. One of the more popular crepe myrtle varieties several years ago was the dynamite, bright red, yeah. beautiful when it was in flower, just a, just this like a red stoplight in the distance. It and was still very popular. Still very popular, but over the course of time, over the course of years, does that flower change color? Well, it, it, the, the flower will change color just in the course of a single growing season. Oh, well. Okay. okay. We grow Arapaho, which is very similar to a dynamite. Mm-hmm. The reason it's called dynamite is because it, the, the flowers, the red flower will start producing some white petals. On That's it. what people see, yeah. Right. And so you, you see the white petal um, produced and you, you, you think it's an anomaly. But that's just what the tree does, especially mm-hmm. in a certain time of year. It's toward the, more toward the later part of the, the growing season. Um, but also, I, I got a call one time. At a job site, the architect said the trees weren't uh, uh, Arapahoes. Arapaho looks like said very similar, does very similar things in the, the red color. We said, it's pink. Well, it's because the flowers fade. The flowers start off red, and then they get more, they get pink as they get old. You know, I get old, I get wrinkled. Flowers get <laughs> pink. Flowers fade. Yeah. yeah they, they, I, get, I get pink. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it was the correct tree, mm-hmm. but didn't understand that the flower color changes. All right. Back to the phones we go. Numbers to call in, 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Let's talk to Jack here in Sacramento. Hi, Jack. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. I have a question. I manage large design build construction projects that run multi-year. So I have an opportunity to plant uh, most any time of the year. What's the optimal season or time to plant large landscaped areas? Depends where you are. Uh, mainly Sacramento, Central Valley. Okay. Uh, anytime. Just about any time, yeah. The, the only restriction might be if it's just too muddy to work. Yeah, I, as far as the plant, the plant material itself, when you get it from a nursery, it's going to be irrigated. It's going to be uh, most likely fertilized in some way. And as long as the material has been irrigated, um, you can plant any time, as long as it's followed up with the appropriate irrigation. Uh, if you plant something that's dry, if, if, we'll deliver plant material. We water, we irrigate everything before we, we deliver it. But if you get a tr- you know, trees that are dry and they have to sit out for three days on concrete at 100 degrees, those trees, you plant them, they're, they're not going to take up the water and they'll probably they'll be stressed significantly after they're planted. So with proper planting, uh, with you know, good plant material, you can plant any time of year. One more question, and I'll let you go. Uh, generally, I have the landscape contractor do a uh, one-year maintenance on uh, the landscaping. In other words, the gentleman who installs it also does the one-year maintenance contract. Right. And is there a that seems to be the optimal way for me to to work? Does that make sense to you? Oh yeah, that's standard. I mean yeah, that that, okay. that that that's a very standard uh, procedure with in contracts. Okay, very good. 
I've had projects where the architect didn't specify that, and we had issues. Uh, uh, no, it's it's common. The thing, most nurseries will not guarantee wholesale nurseries will not guarantee the plant material because once it's in the ground, we lose we lose contact with it, and we lose control of it. <laughs> so that's where the contractor gets gets up in t- in tight situation. He has to continue maintenance for an extended period a period of time, and he he may not you know he may have a problem with the irrigation. He may have planted too deep. He may have done something wrong. So he's got to replace the plant material, and it's on his own on his own dime. Very good. All right, appreciate information. Thank you very much. All right, Jack. Thanks for calling. You're you're listening to the Landscape Hour here on <laughs> KSDE. When we come back, let's talk about um, you have lists in front of you about uh, trees. I've got all kind of stuff in uh, front of me. All right, we're going to talk trees when we come back to get growing on Talk Six Fifty KSDE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. With Jeff Gravish from Bothing Treeland Farms, consulting arborists. We're talking trees, trees that make for good privacy screens, or shrubs for that matter. Also, um, small trees for small yards. Lots of good tips there. And spring flowering trees. Garden Grappler coming up at 11 o'clock. Clue available at FarmerFred.com and a clue available at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. Back to the phones we go. Let's go to another person in our local um, listening area, Charlie in Brooklyn. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Fred. What's up? How you doing? Hi, Charlie. What's up? Oh, thanks for the two tickets, by the way. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I sent two. uh, Charlie was a Garden Grappler winner a few weeks ago, so I sent him two tickets to the Sacramento Home and Garden Show. Oh, well, that'd be a cheap, a really uh, cheap way to get over here, really? I'm sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were having a discussion last year, really. It's about should you fertilize your ground for vegetables? I was saying no. Like, I make the leaf compost. You know, I weed whack them and I put them in the big 55-gallon blue drum and they turn it into compost. I say use the compost instead. You can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's the timing that's important. Now, in Brooklyn, New York, right now, aren't you having a nor'easter coming through? Well, we had the two of them last week, and we might have another one coming Monday or Tuesday. Yeah, you don't really want to work the soil when it's too wet. Yeah, well, well, I really, I don't really even dig. The only time I dig is when I put my plant in, you know, when I make a hole. Right. And that's it. And I just put the... Uh, the mulch on top or the compost, whatever you want to call it. And yeah. That's it. Okay. Well, if it works for you, fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I mean, my yard, I just I take all the leaves and I just pile them on all over. The, I just cover it. Yep. The leaves break down, they mulch, and you get nutrients. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's what my backyard looks like, too. Yeah. yeah. No, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, a lot of people don't like that look, Charlie, so they will want to fertilize the soil, but I'd still use a a slow-reacting fertilizer, like an organic fertilizer, something that's not going to yeah. break down all at once. Yeah, that's, we're supposed to be uh, organic in the garden, but there's some people that use that blue stuff. Well, yeah, what can you do? <laughs> all right, cool. All right, Charlie, all right. thanks for the call. Good Got luck. Uh, thanks, bye-bye. Good luck with any future nor'easter that hits the East Coast. I see three nor'easters. That's a triple yeah. Easter. Yeah, nor- triple Easter, yes. <laughs> All right. So, what else is on your list there? I, I want you. You well, went. Got, you did some. I got a lot of preparatory work spring here. Spring flowering trees, yeah. screens, and small trees, which some of them are overlapping. 
Okay, yes, and we talked about the crepe myrtle, which is a small tree for a small yard. Yes, it's an excellent tree for a small yard Yeah, because you can leave it as a tree or you can make it a shrub on a stick. Yeah, what is the trend I'm seeing with creating more shrubs on a stick, turning them into what is called standards? And I've been seeing that with photinias. Yeah, well, photinias have been a standard for... So the definition of a standard, which I always get into arguments with, is a shrub that you make into a single trunk tree right? versus a tree versus a shrub. This is something you have to do right from the get-go when you plant that originally. Yeah. Yeah, you can't convert a multi-trunked plant like an oleander into a tree overnight. Right, and so... Um, there's a shrub called Arafulepsis, right. Indian hawthorn, mm-hmm. and there's a variety called um, Majestic Beauty. How tall does that get? Uh, 20 feet. Oh, really? 15, that, 20 that's feet. That's a big yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's a very popular selling tree, and, and the, the Majestic Beauty name is trademarked by another nursery. So we were all growing that tree. We called it Majestic Beauty. Well, the patent police mm-hmm. came in to everybody and gave us all cease and desist letters, so all the other growers had to call it now Magnificent. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nursery game. Yes, it is. But anyway, so the Raphulepis Majestic Beauty, or Magnificent, uh, is a great small tree blooming now. Uh, Raphulepis is a great, we mentioned flat-headed boars before. Right. They do get flat-headed boars because they're a rose family. And it seems like anything in the rose family except roses and maybe, and I'm not a rose guy, so, because uh, I dislike roses, but uh, flat-headed <laughs> <Right>. boars. <laughs> That's a popular thing to say on this show. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure somebody's slamming a, 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 slamming their desk right now or throwing something in the ground, but I cannot stand roses. Yeah, it's sort of like my love for irises. <laughs> oh, I like irises. Yeah, well, so you, there we go. No, I, I'll give you mine. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, so the, the, the India hawthorn, yeah. which I always okay. considered like a shrub. I didn't realize they got that tall. Yeah, oh, they, we grow hundreds and hundreds of standard trees, and they're they're very popular tree. Very, um, they, use, they can be used architecturally in commercial jobs as sort of a, you know, a, a a line, lining a, ro- a walkway or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, there's uh, Fotinias. Fotinias will get to be a little bit bigger um, generally, but that's been around as a standard for a long time. You have to watch Fotinias for crown gall. Yeah. They, they will get crown gall, and, it's, and with a single trunk, it's easy to see. And entomosporium. And entomosporium leaf spot, which you just got to learn to live Yeah, with. exactly. It's sort of like leaf miner on citrus. You just yeah. deal with it. You just, you know, forget it. Yeah, it just happens, and it goes away. It's not like it's going to it's not gonna kill anything, right. and it's going to go away when it gets hot. Um, I just saw um, Cenothus Ray Hartman as a standard. Oh, Lord. Oh, it's, and it's a cool little standard. You know, it's a small standard tree. I, why... You know, Growing it like that is, you know, something that we don't do, but some people do. But it's it's a neat little tree. There is a tendency to do more and more of those, either because they somebody will put them in a pot. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're landscaping a large commercial or large custom residential job, uh, you'll you'll put maybe some in pots on both sides of the door, or put it on a patio, right. just an yeah. accent. Usually that was the realm of tree roses. Yeah. Now it's these plants that used to be shrubs but are now trees. Yeah. Um, pineapple guava. Fehoa sloeana. Now, that would be a tough one, I would think, to make into a standard. It's an easy one to make into a really? standard. Really? Yeah. Okay. The only issue is that it gets big fruit. Mm-hmm. And well, so, it's not that big. Well, yeah. It gets a lot of well, fruit. Well, let me say this. It gets a lot of fruit, but yeah. if, you're, if you're sitting underneath it, well, yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. a big fruit. Yeah. And it's going to fall on your head. And that's yeah. the time to eat it is yeah. after and, it falls. Yeah, that's right. And that's, a very, that's common as a small tree also. So there's a lot of small evergreen trees like that. I and mean, most of the evergreen ones are... Um, are modifications of a shrub. They're standards. There's Prunus carolinea compacta. Mm-hmm. Okay, 20, 15 to twenty foot tall, uh, very co- you know very tight growth, makes a very nice small little tree. 
What about using pineapple guava as a uh, sta- as a privacy screen? Uh, it's a great privacy screen. I mean, um, it's you know, it's height wise. It, again, privacy screens depending on how much privacy you want to have. Yeah. But if you're going to put it in front of a fence, um, you can keep it maintained. You can keep it closer to the fence. You know, it's if it gets to be 15 feet tall, it's going to be 15 feet wide, or for someone that range, right. it's a shrub or a small multi-trunk tree. Uh, but you can cut it back and you keep it close. I, I actually had one as a screen in, in an area one time. I just the, the the amount of fruit produced just got to be overwhelming after a while. I found it was very useful as a screen to hide my pool equipment back at my old place. I had three pineapple guavas in front of it. Yeah, and they grow not really quickly, but they grew up to be six feet tall in a matter of three years or so. It was it's a plant that if you cut it'll it'll break lower. You get new new growth coming lower, so mm-hmm. you can keep keep it relatively full. Right. There's going to come a point where it's going to be too woody. It's going to be hard to, you may not get as much growth coming out when you cut it back yeah. and try to maintain the size. But, um, yeah, it's a great screen. And you can use the flowers in the kitchen. The flowers are pretty. I mean, they are, they're, they're really pretty flowers. Yeah. Pineapple guava, sometimes known as the feoa, sometimes known as the aca. The aca, yeah. Depending on Which what edition the, of Sunset you have. The International Congress of Botanical Nomenclature, where they all the pointy heads sit together and say, I don't want to call it feoa anymore. I want to call it aca. Well, why do you want to do that, Bob? Oh, because <laughs> I don't like feoa anymore. Yes. And then they mess up the nursery industry. And uh, another way they've messed up the industry is with another plant that I really like that would probably make a good privacy screen too and in a month or so it's going to be a great show for the nose it used to be the uh oh fred just blanked on the name um uh not migo it's now a migo no not migo (laughs) it's now a magnolia and but the old genus was it's the banana shrub uh, Michaelia. Uh, Michaelia, yeah. Michaelia, it used to yeah. be a Michaelia figo. Yeah, Michaelia okay. figo or and now it's, Sopa. Yeah, and now it's Magnolia figo. Figo, okay. And uh, not common, not easy to find. Um, not many growers grow them. So it's, but it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, I don't know that plant that well. Um, so I'm going to plead a little ignorance. Okay. I, just, I, I see it appear on, uh, on requests and we just, well, I don't know where you're going to get it. I'm sure uh, people will ask me uh, what it is when that tree or shrub, really, it's in a pot right now. It's maybe only five feet tall. But I have it out near the sidewalk and near the mailbox cluster. And I bet in April when it starts putting on its afternoon show for the nose with its fragrant flowers, people are going to ask me what it is. Right now it looks like a nondescript green shrub. Even my wife says it looks like a phony plant. It's not. It's got glossy green leaves, and it has insignificant flowers, but they're just so aromatic yeah. in, in April. And it's uh, we had one at our old place next to the patio door, and we were constantly pruning that back to make it make sure it was not taller than the house. Mm-hmm. So it could get 8 to 10 feet tall in no time. Yeah. And there's, there's other fragrant shrubs that make great screens, too. Like uh, Osmanthus fragrance, mm-hmm. yeah, is it, you know, and, that, and that's one because it can take some shade, mm, so it okay. does does well in the shade, um, and it has a very fragrant flower. Uh, there's, um, oh boy, now I'm going to blank on a, a couple things, so I'm not going to go well, as long as you don't <laughs> say winter Daphne. <laughs> no, actually, we, uh, yeah, I, I would never, I would, I would tell everybody, don't go near winter Daphne. Well, it, it, well, it, it's great for going near it to, for the odor, yes, the smell. But their fragrance, I guess, is a way to put it. But um, 
just good luck keeping it alive. My uh, advice whenever I see a winter Daphne that looks great, I tell the homeowner, whatever you do, don't do anything different. Just leave it. Whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. Leave it where it is. Don't take it out of the can and plant it. Just leave it in the can and just let it sit there. And if you want fragrance, just let it sit there in the, in the old container, but don't touch it because they are just, they are fussy. Yeah, but I, I found it. We did transplant it out of the one or the five that it came in and put it in a large container, but it sat there forever yeah. and did fine next to the front door, a north-facing front door. Yeah. And it was just gorgeous. Yeah, they're pretty plants. They're, they're, they're great for the shade, great mm-hmm. in shade, but they are just very, very, very difficult. Yeah, so like I say, if if... If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Just don't change whatever you're doing if you're having success with it. Don't even praise it to its face because it will. You can talk behind rebel. its back. You yeah. can talk behind its back. Yeah. That's fine. But if you start praising it effusively, it'll take its revenge out on you. Yeah, that's sort of the way my, my wife feels about me. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we won't go there. Uh, we'll take a break. More Get Growing on the Way on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Welcome back to the program. Fred here. Jeff Gravish is here from Bothing Treeland Farms in San Joaquin County. He's a consulting arborist and sales manager out there. He will be judging the Garden Grappler at 11, clue for which is available at FarmerFred.com as well as Get Growing uh, with Farmer Fred Facebook page. Uh, Let's delve into the email you've been sending to Fred at FarmerFred.com. Um, well, first of all, before we delve into the email, a question I got yesterday uh, when I was at Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, and uh, I was in the orchard area, and a woman came up and started talking about problems with her redwood tree, Jeff, and she thinks it's a coast redwood tree. Really? She has a row of them. Really? And she had a problem with one of them. Oh, and my. It, and it isn't the problem you think. Okay. Th- this is a little different. And she had branches dying, needles dying. And she brought an arborist out. Okay, that's a good move. And the arborist said, you have bark beetles. We advise you to start a spray program to control the bark beetles. And I was trying to think of, okay, which bark beetle attacks redwoods? I guess it's a cypress beetle that attacks redwoods. Although I'm I'm not familiar at all with beetles being a problem with redwoods. Not a significant problem that I remember, but you know, my my college is degrees entomology, so I go have to go back into the the memory banks here. But uh, redwoods, I do remember redwoods being attacked by bark beetles. Okay, cypress beetle. You start getting into the same thing with yeah. with plants. You know what what is it really? Right. Yeah. You know, but but I have seen bark beetles now, and, and of course the definition of bark beetles. What is it exactly? You know, is a shot hole bore? Is it? You know, it, it's it's sort of a I think if we Googled it, we could probably find examples of it. This person hadn't seen the beetle. All she saw was sap running out out the tree, and the arborist said, you have this beetle, let's start a spray program. Okay, no, so I wouldn't go that. Uh, uh, sap, I mean, sap runs for many different reasons. Yeah, like I mean, maybe a hard freeze. Uh, okay, <laughs> and also just like natural. I mean, yeah. when, you, when it gets hot, mm-hmm. the, the tree's pulling up a lot of water, at times just wants to, you know, let go some pressure. Right. So the dying of various branches could be one of the more common maladies of coast redwoods in our area these days if they're over a certain age of 15 or 20 years. And, and that's some sort of crown rot disease. Some yeah, sort there of could s- be a lot of things. I, you know, you should not 
put a spray program together to control something unless you know for sure you have it and yeah. you've seen it. And bark beetles aren't that hard to, you know, depending where they are on the tree. Um, and, you know, redwoods have very thick bark, and sometimes it's difficult for a bark beetle to, to penetrate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, the, and sapping is generally a defensive mechanism when the beetle goes in. The, bark, the, sap, the tree produces sap to push the beetle back out. So it's a, that means that sapping a lot of times is just you're being attacked, but you're controlling the situation. The tree's defending itself. So it could be, but I wouldn't sit there. I wouldn't put any spray program together unless you have identified exactly what it is. And if there's a beetle, what kind it is. Right, exactly. And you can have that done. To, even the, the state will do it for you. And with most bark beetles, uh, true to their name, they're under the bark. They're, they're drilling under the bark and they're making tunnels, and a, a spray applied to the outside of the tree isn't going to do any good. The spray program has to catch the adults. Yeah, and it, so that means all you're doing would be spraying the healthy trees so that when an adult lands on it, it's killed by right, that spray. Right, Now, we, we talked in the, the earlier show about using imidacloprid as a possible control for bark beetles, and there's, there's other chemicals. You can inject, a, 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 an arborist can inject trees with material, plant, uh, chemicals that can help control bark beetles. Mm-hmm. But it's costly. It's, it depends on the, the tree, the effectiveness but again, um, most bark beetles are under the bark. They, they engrave um, tunnels underneath bark, except for the one we were discussing earlier, the polyphagus shot hole borer, right. which is a problem in Southern California right now, which goes into the bark deep and gets away from um, the conductive fluids, which a, a, a systemic so, chemical would use. Okay, so it gets beyond the xylem and the phloem. Then. Right. Wow. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so anyways, don't... Uh, don't, don't Go into an expensive spray program unless you know what your pest problem really is. So my advice to her was get a second opinion. Yeah. Get a consulting arborist. Get a consulting arborist. Yeah, right. Or a, tr- a risk assessment arborist. Right. There's, there. there's different levels of, of arborists. There's yeah. people that aren't certified that, that have a license to do tree work. Mm-hmm. There are certified arborists that go through training and they, they have to be qualified. They have to get, do continuing education. And there's a consulting arborist, which is a level higher, which there's more continuing education involved, and, um, but they don't necessarily do the work, the tree work themselves. Right. Then there's the guy and his family in the pickup truck with a chainsaw that uh, do work that you're really risking a lot. Yeah. They're not even, they're not even, they don't even have the basic D contractor's license. Right. They're, they got, they own a chainsaw, maybe yeah. a ladder. Yeah. They don't even have a chipper shredder. They're not bonded. They don't have workers' comp. Yeah. And, and if, they, if they saw a branch off that hits uh, your neighbor's house, it's on your dime. That's right. So generally, I can't speak in every case, but I think in all, pretty much in every case, if you're a certified arborist, you're a professional, bonded, licensed, insured. insured. Yeah. And exactly. that's why you can find certified arborists on the International Society of Arboriculture website. You, they will show you all the certified arborists in your area. Mm-hmm. Uh, treesaregood.com is their website, or treesaregood.org. And go to either one of those, and you'll see a listing, a tab that says Find an Arborist. And you click on that, and you enter in your zip code, and up will pop a big list of arborists and their specialties. And on that list, you're going to find consulting arborists, as well as a risk assessment arborists, as well as just your general arborists. Right. And some will say that they're available for hire. Others will say they're not. Right. And when you're working with something that could be 40, 50 feet tall, that has the potential to fall on something that you value, yeah. you want to have a professional do it. 
Exactly, yeah. I mean, uh, how many times have you seen on the TV news about some uh, tree dangling precipitously over a house that's been poorly pruned and uh, all all you know is uh, the homeowner is responsible for it because the guy that did the sawing has disappeared. Right. And don't do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, stay on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Otherwise, you will be on the ground, yeah. laying on your back. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, chainsaws and people don't mix in trees. There was just a story um, of a an arborist, a co- arborist company, arbor company. The uh, guy in the tree was killed when he uh, hit a power line. Yeah. And either he the, the branch hit the power line and pulled it down on him, or he he cut it with hit it with his chainsaw. Ooh. Now, usually, they're they're certified. You know, arborist professional companies are are. They don't get near power lines, so right. most likely something structurally happened. He, he made a mistake, and it came down. So, so there's there's a being in a tree with a chainsaw is really really dangerous. Yeah, and you'll notice all the specialty equipment they wear too: the protection, the ear protection, hard hat, uh, chaps, and, and the, the amount of training yeah. they go. Climbers yeah. go through a lot of training. Yeah, no, they're amazing. When you deal with a, a really good arboreal company, you'll be amazed at. Uh, the level of skill that these people have right. in cutting trees. It, 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 it really is. Because it is an extremely dangerous job. I have videos. <laughs> uh, there are lots of videos, yes. yes. I mean, good and bad. So. Yeah, well, I got the good ones. That's, that's always good. All right, Garden Grappler is going to come up in about uh, after the news at 11 o'clock. And there is a clue available at FarmerFred.com and a clue available at Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Jeff Gravish will be the official judge and hanging jury for today's competition. And we're supposed to increase the snark. Did you mention that earlier that I heard today? Did we have to? Okay, we can. I, usually I increase the snark on Twitter. Okay. It, it depends what time right, well, it then is. Well, then I'll be kind of snarkless then. Oh, no, you can be. That's okay. It's it, it's there's We are not a snark-free zone here. Okay. All right. That's okay. It's Get Growing. I've been doing this for 26 years. People know who I am. They want me to be me. <laughs> well, I, I am, and I also I have known for a, a bit of that also. Okay, great. All right, so we'll get into that after the news. Also, coming up at 1130, we're going to be talking about wildflowers and drought and how a, a UC Davis researcher discovered that a lot of native wildflowers have built-in drought resistance where their seeds have been trained not to all sprout during a drought, even if a rainstorm hits. It's it's rather amazing about the drought effectiveness of wildflower seeds. So that's coming up in the next hour of Get Growing right here on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, it's Garden Grappler time. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred prize closet if you're up on your spring flowering trees. So what I would like you to name is a tree that flowers before the leaves have fully developed. So it might be a tree you see in bloom right now. Name a tree that flowers before the leaves have fully developed. The number's to call, 916-576-1578 or toll-free, 866-331-8255. However, be specific. Don't just say, uh, magnolia, because there's a lot of magnolias, and not all of them are spring-blooming trees where the leaves have not fully developed. So be specific. Name a tree that flowers before the leaves have fully developed, Be specific. All five callers get a prize, special bonus prize for caller five, because as you know, in the Garden Grappler, you cannot repeat an earlier answer. 
Again, the numbers, 916-576-1578, or outside the area, 866-331-8255. Good luck. All right, Jeff Gravish from uh, Bothing Treeland Farms is our judge and jury for this competition, by the way. So, Jeff, while people are calling Terry and he's lining up the the winners and the losers for today's competition, let's uh, let's talk shop here. What are the trends coming? Because as part of a wholesale nursery, I would think you have to plan ahead. You have to plan and and think about what's going to be hot in five years. Exactly. What, yeah. And it's like that's that's crystal ball stuff. Yeah, it, it, because it takes time to to propagate and yeah. to grow a tree. So we do look at at five and even in five years and even longer. Right. Um, you know the the trends. Let Let's take this area. You know, that we're in Sacramento, so let's take sort of Sacramento. Uh, Northern California as a as a as a guide. Um, so, what sort of trends do you look at? Do you look at well, let's see, it's not raining much there anymore. Maybe we better find some drought tolerant plants. Yeah, that, you know, yeah, we, we we do take that into <laughs> account. Yeah, well, and Sacramento wanted at one time to be Portland, right? It wanted so we're bringing in Paris. Yeah, we're bringing in a lot of uh, maples and mm-hmm. elms and and ash trees, and so we want to be you know we want to have that big luxury luxurious. Fall color, you know that that we Big get in, broad canopy, right? So no, that's 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 still there a bit, but because of M. Wheelow, because of government regulation as far as 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 water usage, and we can we can get into M. Wheelow, but yeah. it, it gets into the weeds on that. But um, it's now we're becoming more Denver and Las Vegas. Las Vegas drought tolerant trees used in the Southern California, Las Vegas, New Mexico, mm-hmm. Texas, and then Denver. I say because there's a lot of intermountain drought tolerant plants and trees and, and more uh, sorry shrubs more shrubs than trees that are being used in California more and more grasses that uh, go do- dormant in the winter uh, deciduous shrubs in California we think so much of evergreen shrubs right you know we want to have constant green but deciduous shrubs like they have in like in cold areas back east um, can give you you know um, Fall or spring color, fall, uh, spring flowers, fall color, sometimes berries, uh, sometimes attractive bark when they lose their leaves. Mm-hmm. So those are the sort of the trends we see. Succulents are a big trend now. Succulents are used in San Francisco a lot because they want to put them in planters to keep homeless people from, you know, okay. from, I mean, it's a barrier plant. One Bay Area plant that's been popular for years, and I'm seeing it more and more in our area, are, are the wide variety of euphorbias that are out there. Yeah, euphorbias and, and are there's they're easy to uh, let's say genetically they vary a lot. So you can sit there and you can find um, you can propagate different kinds, variegated ones, purple ones. Uh, we grow the regular euphorbia wolf and I, the mother mothership yeah. basically, uh, and it's a very it's very popular in Seattle. I saw it all planted in all over Seattle. We are definitely not Seattle, right? But it is a very drought tolerant, easy. Well, How could something growing in Seattle be drought tolerant? It's it's a yeah. tough. In other words, a tough plant. Yeah, you take water, in, but it's also very drought tolerant. Okay. There's a lot of plants that are drought tolerant and can take water both. Right. Um, this is sylvatica, the, the okay. sour gum tree. Yeah, right. It can do both. It can live in a swamp. Yeah. But it can it can exist in a drought tolerant condition. But its vibrant fall color is better if it is in a swampy condition. Yeah. If it's if it's if it's taken care of. Yeah. I mean, I look better in the morning when I'm taken care of. So you know, when I'm fresh <laughs> and I get up and I have yes. my coffee. Yeah. You know, it, it's it, the tree's happy. It does better. Yeah. And 
the trees that have fallen out of favor as we try to get away from that Portland experience and more like you say to the Las Vegas experience, some of the trees we planted uh, over the last 30, 40 years have developed so many problems they're not even available at nurseries anymore, uh, like the well, Modesto ash. Yeah, Modesto ash is a, it's a, it's a it, at one time it was sort of the, the tree du jour. Every, the perfect plant, tree. Planted yeah. every place. But now we discovered the structural problems, the disease issues. Uh, it's a, um, a friend of mine has a you know, 60 foot tall Modesto ash that has to be cabled completely together because it'll, it'll, it's, it's failing. So, but they don't want to get remove it, so they're cabling the, the tree. But it, it's a tree that needs help. And it, it isn't grown anymore. N- nurseries follow trends. We get rid of the old, we bring in the new. So Modesto ash, um, she oak, uh, casuarina. Casuarina stricta? Yeah, casuarina stricta, which kind of sort of looks like a, a pine in a way. Yeah. It's an Australian native. It's interesting. It's a, but it's just a structurally horrible tree. Yeah. I'm thinking of a similar plant from Australia. It begins with a G, and it was used as a landscape tree. Think about Gaijira? No, no. Uh, Which may, is still used. Yeah, it may have been a Gaijira. Yeah. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Australian willow? Yeah. It's still yeah, used that's extensively. Okay. Yeah, that, okay. That's still a very popular tree. All right. And a very and a good tree because it just it's drought tolerant, just grows, no insect pests, mm-hmm. no disease problems. One tree you don't see much of anymore, I can guess why, is uh, one of the parents to a very popular tree now. The very popular tree now is the Chitalpa. One of its parents was a Catalpa, which is a cigar tree. And cigar tree, big leaves, that those cigars, green cigars that hung from the tree. Right. But it was just, I think, too big for its britches. So it's Chilopsis and Catalpa right. becomes Chitalpa. Chitalpa. And the Chitalpa now, big seller. Yeah, the, the, we grow a, a variety called Pink Dawn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, since I'm in sales, I shouldn't say anything bad about the tree. I'll say it gets anthracnose. At least that's what it did in my yard. Yeah. Well, and, and again, there's a debate whether that's anthracnose or whether that's bacterial. Mm, because there's, okay. there's research being done in New Mexico that say that that it is actually a bacterial problem. We spray them for anthracnose. We can't control it. So about midsummer, it looks pretty bad. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it does. It tends to lose its leaves. Yeah, it's a... So, uh, you know, my, my, my company will probably be annoyed at me. Well, I but... can just talk about my experience with it. I planted six of them back when they were the hot tree introduced back in the 90s, and three of the six blew over. Yeah. And uh, you, you can't prop them back up and expect them to grow. They won't. They grow structurally odd. Yeah. They, don't, they don't grow in a very, very symmetrical, you know, they don't have radial symmetry. They don't have lat- bilateral symmetry. They just sort of grow out and, and, and um, it's very difficult to keep them structured properly. We grow them to a central leader. We, we prune them extensively to try to get good structure to start. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's a tree that once it leaves, once, once it leaves the farm, and it gets into a landscape, it does what it wants. Right. And it's going to be a round-headed tree, and it's, it's, and it's going to be... A low-growing, uh, yeah. rounded tree but the, to and boot. And, and when, it's, when it doesn't have a disease problem, when it blooms, it's one of the few summer flu- flowering trees you get. And it's a very pretty tree, but then it, it starts to uh, have its disease problems. Where I have noticed where it seems to be successful year after year is in the foothills on a hillside mm-hmm. that has good drainage. Yeah, I, I can't attest to any difference in that. Yeah, um, at Sacramento, uh, I'm a, on the technical advisory committee with the Sacramento Tree Foundation. Still, we, yeah, I'm still there. And we talked about, 
you know, not recommending the Chautauqua for the city of Sacramento and mm-hmm. almost like a round of applause went out <laughs> finally <laughs> because, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a difficult tree. You have to, if you want it in your yard, you have to accept it. Now, there are other varieties and, and some of them may have more disease resistant, but Pink Dawn is the common one. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, let's see, Modesto Ash no longer popular. Evergreen Oh, yeah, the evergreen pear. Now, we're talking the evergreen pear would be the uh, Kawakami. Kawa, 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 yeah, Pyrus Kawakami. Kawa, or... Yeah. Uh, talk about a brittle sail in the wind. <laughs> yeah, it's still grown by some people, but it is notorious tree for fire blight. Yeah. I mean, it is the, the if you look, if you uh, Google fire blight, <laughs> it, it, Pyrus Kawakami comes up. I mean, is that it would come up, I think, as the poster boy for it. It's, it's, a, it's just a very poor tree. Uh, structurally poor. Yeah, uh, needs a lot of work to try to to get a, a a proper structure. But the fire blight's significant. The close cousin to the Pyrus Kawakami is the Pyrus um, Calariana. Thank you, Calariana, uh, or the Chanticleer pear. Sometimes, it's, yeah, aristocrat. The yeah, there's a yeah. lot of a lot of varieties of of uh, Pyrus Calariana. So those are the so-called flowering pears that don't get fruit, but do get very small little marble-sized fruit at times, mm-hmm. depending and, on the variety. And branches break of their own accord in the summertime. Yeah, and it depends on the tree. There's a there's a variety called Bradford that is a structurally poor tree. Then there's one called New Bradford, which isn't really a Bradford, which is a better structure. They're, they they are developing, still developing calorianas to meet certain requirements. There's dwarf yeah. trees. There's columnar trees. There's spreading trees. The problem is that the tree is disease-prone, and it's right. being used less and less by cities. All right. We are in the midst of the garden grappler here, lining up five people who can name a spring flowering tree, a tree that flowers before the leaves have fully developed. But be specific. Uh, we still have an open line at 576-1578 here in the 916 or 866-331-8255. Name a tree that flowers before the leaves have fully developed. Be specific. We'll get to your answers when we come back to get growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, we have five people lined up who say they can answer today's garden grappler. Name a tree that flowers before the leaves have fully developed. Jeff Gravish is here from Bothing Treeland Farms. He will be the official judge for this competition. Let's start with caller number one. It is Christy here in Sacramento. Hi, Christy. Good morning. Good morning. So are you awake or are you jet lagged? I'm awake and jet lagged. (laughs) All right. That goes with daylight savings time. All right. So go ahead and name a a tree that uh, has flowers before the leaves have fully developed. Evergreen pear. Funny you guys are talking about it. Funny that we would. That we were just saying off the air. Do you realize we gave an answer to the today's question? <laughs> but every- but I had that answer. It, it, well, yeah, I had yeah. That answer before you uh, talked about it. However, <laughs> however, Christy. Uh-oh. Okay. Well, th- think about the name of the plant for a second. Evergreen pear. So. Oh. So the but, flowers, but what? Well, I would say, but there's a close cousin that we there's mentioned. a close cousin that we yeah. mentioned. Yeah. He remember which one? It was in one? my front yard. It didn't. It. <laughs> well, so so. Well, okay. So, do I have to name a specific brand like the Kamikaze that you mentioned? Well, okay. No, Our, you don't have to do that. But well, 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 well we can define a little bit. Uh, evergreen pears will lose their leaves for a very short period of time. 
and bloom. So it's but it's not con- but it's it's not really considered so much a deciduous tree. But I'll let it go. Oh, well, I can I can name off a fruit tree like Arctic Star Nectarine or something. Well, so there, I'll, yeah, that. There we go. Yeah, there. there we go. Okay, all that, right. That was a simple one. Yeah, that. <laughs> The you you didn't even have to say Arctic Star. You could have just said Nectarine, but saying Arctic Star Nectarine works for me. All right, does it work for you, Jeff? It works for me. All right, Christy, congratulations. What do we have for everybody today, Fred? Oh, from the Farmer Fred Fine Library that's taking up paper space in his closet. Uh, Farmer Fred's terrific tomato tips and also how to choose and plant bare root fruit trees. So I'll be sending that information to you, Christy. Beautiful. I'm on my way to go buy one. All right. Good luck. Thank you. Have fun. Congratulations. All right. So Nectarine is off the list here for basically uh, name a tree that flowers before the leaves have fully developed. And uh, the evergreen pear's cousin is still in play, if somebody can name that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because we didn't stumble onto that one. Adam and Calusa, go ahead. Give us a uh, spring blooming tree, if you will. Well, I was thinking of a uh, tulip tree, or what they also call them, a saucer magnolia. That's a winner. Yep, Saucer Magnolia. You were specific, and that's uh, the Magnolia Solangiana with very dramatic flowers. Oh, yeah, and there's lots of varieties of Solangiana or or related trees that'll do the same thing. Yeah, and uh, a variety of colors, too. Yeah. The Saucer Magnolia. May I ask a question? Sure, go ahead. We're just here to answer questions. It's regarding a a privacy hedge. A side of my property is about 70 feet long. It borders an alley, runs west to east. And I was thinking about planting an evergreen hedge or tree, and I was thinking about an English laurel, but not sure how it would do in full sun in the Calusa area. Okay, that's what we needed to know is how much sun would that area get. English laurels struggle in full sun. Yeah. Uh, it, now, remember, it's, it's, it can be 15 to 20 feet tall and 15 to 20 feet wide. So, and, oh. and it's used in Seattle. I, I always go back to Seattle for some reason. I don't know why, but it's used... In the Pacific Northwest, a lot is a screen, and it can be sheared, but it looks it looks a little bit odd when it's sheared because it has big leaves. And so, when you're, you're if you take a head shear and go across it, uh, it'll cut the leaves. So it'll have that sort of cut look a lot of times. Um, mm-hmm. So the other part though is it it, it like, doesn't do real well, real well in hot sun. They can get mm-hmm. some disease issues and they get stressed in the heat. So you think more. You- go ahead. Can you recommend another another something else to plant instead uh, of English laurel? Instead of an English laurel, I'd plant a Carolina laurel, Prunus Caroliniana, or per- mm-hmm. Prunus Caroliniana compacta. I always have trouble saying that. Caroliniana compacta, maybe 15 feet tall, more pyramidal, um, very very pretty, um, but you, you, the width is maybe four feet, four or five feet. And what about Loris nobilis? Loris nobilis is long, but you have to maintain Loris nobilis. Yeah, but well, or let it go like I did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Loris nobilis will get. To, Loris nobilis. If I want is a, something that, that's thirty feet tall. Would those either of those qualify for that? Loris nobilis can get thirty. Oh yeah, feet if you tall. want something thirty feet tall, Prunus caroliniana, not the compacta, but the Prunus caroliniana will get to be twenty some. Loris nobilis can get to be thirty feet tall. Um, as a shrub, as as keeping it columnar and full, maybe it's going to be less. It might be, you know, 20 feet, something in that range, or it's going to try to become a tree out of that whole, you know, mess of branches. But Loris nobilis works very well. Um, Chinese or Japanese blueberry tree, Iliocarpus, would work well. Can that take the heat of the valley that well? Yeah, they do okay. fine. All right. I know it does well in the Bay Area. And we grow them at full sun. Okay. And they do fine. All right. So, Perfect. Thank you so much. All right, Appreciate Adam. It. Thanks for the call. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, plant. How far apart? If you're planting as a screen, how far apart would you plant these plants? Eight Lord, feet. Again, it just depends how instant. How much screen. money you have? Yeah, and and if you want instant screen or not. Loris Nobles can get you know, um, fifteen twenty feet wide. I would I would guess as yeah. a screen. You right. know, it just keeps building out. It grows straight up, but then it keeps building out and building mm-hmm. out. Um, it's a great bird hotel. Oh yeah, I, I, it, and it's also great uh, aphid and mealybug hotel. Well, the birds eat them. <laughs> well, that's why. So it's a great bird hotel. Okay. Yes, yeah. Exactly. You know, this has a restaurant in the yeah, hotel. Yeah. All right. All right. Marilyn in Sacramento, go ahead and give us a, a spring blooming tree, if you would please. Uh, Prunus serrasifera. Wow. I'm oh. impressed. Yeah, that is there. Are there extra points for? Yeah, I'll tell you what, Marilyn, because you used the full botanical name on that one, I'll I'll send you uh, the my psychic bonus points. Oh, the infamous. Yes, the infamous psychic bonus. Points. No, I thought there was cash. I thought there was cash involved in that. Or no, no, no? Oh, okay. no. This is a low budget show. Oh, okay, sorry. Jeff. Yeah, so, sorry. Yeah, Prunus serrasifera. There's there are different varieties. The Crowder Vesuvius is the most common variety. It's it's supposed to be fruitless, but Maintenance companies consistently spray them because they always they'll regularly or irregularly produce some sort of fruit. Oh, I'm confused now. Um, the Sarasifera, what is the common name? Thundercloud. Okay, Thundercloud's a variety. Crowder Vesuvius, Thundercloud. Those are the two most common. Blirian, well, Blirian is not a Sarasifera. No, an English word. Uh, flowering plum. Thank you. All right, that's what I thought it was, was a flowering plum. But when you started saying that it came... In well, the variety you mentioned, I thought, well, Crowder Vesuvius, yeah, I thought that was another spring oh. flowering tree. Oh, every right. gray hair is a dead brain cell, yes, and, it and, is. And you have a gray beard, so oh, you're, you've the, compounded it. I wish this gray beard was on top of my head, at least there'd be hair there then. Uh, but, but yeah, Prunicera Sarasifera, Sarasifera, Thundercloud or Crowder Vesuvius, okay, plum, evergreen plum. Flowering plum. Flowering plum, yeah, not evergreen. Flowering plum. Uh, Good for psychic bonus points and the Farmer Fred handouts of terrific tomato tips and choosing and planting bare root trees. Coming your way, Marilyn. Thank you. All right, thanks for calling. All right, caller number four in today's Garden Grappler. It's Karen in Nevada City. So, Karen in Nevada City, go ahead and give us a spring flowering tree, if you would, please. Well, there was an old one that I kind of remember did that but i think the trees we have here the bartlett pear that's the old hmm. variety does that work yeah that works yeah bartlett pear i thought because i've gone out there and picked them when they get real full of blooms and it seems to me that there's no leaves coming when they bloom exactly or they're very small at that point. yeah yeah no good answer there karen so i'll be sending you uh, all that stuff Alrighty. All right. Thanks for calling. Mm-hmm. That takes us to caller five in today's Garden Grappler. It's Roberta in Garden Valley. And Roberta, if you can come up with a spring flowering tree that is not an Arctic star nectaring, a saucer magnolia, a flowering plum, or a Bartlett pear, I have for you uh, the new book by Maureen Gilmer called The Colorful Dry Garden. So I'll be sending that your way if you have a good answer. Well, it's one of my favorites, and it is the red bud. And I'll go with the Oklahoma variety or the eastern. That wow. You know, that that's funny because that's the exact tree I was going to mention. I said, you know, the one tree we haven't talked about is one, and one of my favorites is uh, Oklahoma red bud. Yeah, good answer so, there. So that there's very 
Good psychic. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Roberta, good stuff there. Appreciate it. Well, I do live in Garden Valley. There you go. Oh. Okay. Yeah, that works. <laughs> and so I'll be sending you that new book from Maureen Gilmer, The Colorful Dry Garden. Thank, thank you so thanks. much. All right. You're welcome. Thanks for playing our little game. And Jeff Gravish, thank you for uh, making the foggy drive up to Sacramento for uh, the show. And I hope it's not a foggy drive driving back. I bet not. Uh, I think it'll be a nice day. And uh, Jeff, of course, uh, Bothing Treeland Farm, wholesale grower of all sorts of plants for your favorite local retail nursery. And it's always a pleasure having on on your show. We learned so much today about good privacy screens and trees, uh, small trees for small yards, and, uh, of course, spring-blooming trees. Thank you, Fred. I appreciate it. When we come back, we're talking with a UC Davis researcher who has discovered some interesting traits about native wildflower seeds, how they protect themselves in a drought. That's coming up as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Interesting research going on at UC Davis about native wildflowers, and they may be more drought tolerant than you think. The study was published in the journal Ecology. Researchers analyzed more than 22,000 seedlings from soil cores collected at UC's McLaughlin Natural Reserve in Northern California during the fall of 2012 and 2014. And what they found was that seeds from native wildflowers increased 201% underground, while above-ground growth increased 14%. Rather amazing, native wildflowers save a lot of seeds during California's drought, 201% more than usual. How about that? And this may also uh, figure into why you may not have success, or at least your impatient success, with starting a wildflower garden. We're talking with Marina LaForgia. She's in the plant sciences department at UC Davis, and uh, she was the lead researcher on this project. Tell us about your research there. And this is rather exciting stuff that a wildflower is smart enough to know when a drought might happen and has the ability somehow to save seed for a wet year. A lot of these wildflowers are are pretty well adapted to California's uh, highly variable climate. You know, as we've seen over the past couple of years, we go from these extremely dry years to an extreme wet year. And it's really hard for a plant to specialize on, um, on each of those types of years and be able to maintain viable populations. So instead of growing every single year and potentially being harmed by a drought, what a species will do is maintain some portion of their population just in a seed form and kind of spread their populations out across years so that they can, you know, try and take advantage of whatever that year might bring. Are there some wildflowers that are better at this than others in your research? Some wildflowers seem to have much stronger dormancy, uh, and it also depends on the type of dormancy. So things like legumes, for instance, that have a physical seed coat, they need to be uh, physically broken in order to germinate. And so they're a lot tougher to break dormancy than something like your, your average annual wildflower that maybe has a physiological dormancy. So things like um, chemicals within the seed actually are maintaining dormancy and those just get broken down over time or maybe with whatever the temperature is or the moisture or light levels so that once the hormones reach a different a certain level then they're primed to germinate 
typically species that have smaller, rounder seeds, we found are um, maintain higher dormancy. Uh, and that might also be a mechanism of um, just uh, how they get buried in the soil. So if you get buried really deep, uh, then you're not going to be triggered by light because you're going to be in the dark. Uh, so you want to be able to maintain dormancy until there's some kind of disturbance that rolls through the system and that'll bring you close to the surface so that you can germinate. Were you working with just California natives or were they uh, wildflowers from all over the country? In the study, we focused on this dichotomy between native wildflowers that are native just to California. Um, and a lot of them are pretty, they're pretty endemic. Uh, and then we also looked at some exotic annual grasses because these grasslands where I work are just dominated by these exotic annual grasses. Um, in fact, in California, we, we call them grasslands because they have these exotic grasses. A lot of the grasslands in California don't really have many native grasses. Uh, but when you're thinking about the number of species, the wildflowers really dominate in terms of number of species. So we have something like over 100 species of native wildflowers on my study site alone, but only like 15 species of grasses. Well, you're pretty good when it comes to wildflowers then. So which ones would you think for the home gardener would be the easiest to grow in a wildflower area? Ooh, generally speaking, I think if you focus on more of the drought tolerant native annuals, those are going to be the ones that have high germination rates across the majority of years. So regardless of whether it's a wet year or a dry year, and you know, sometimes we get these germinating storms uh, and then quickly followed by no rain and a winter drought. Uh, and so the more drought tolerant and hardy your flowers are, the better that they'll be able to withstand that drought. Poppies do really well. We didn't we didn't see a lot of poppies in in our study. And poppies, you know, they're sometimes they're annual, sometimes they're biennial. So they're they're a tricky species, but they do pretty well with drought. Uh, lupins, on the other hand, lupins are tricky. If you can get them to germinate, they do well. But I think um, they're pretty they're pretty finicky when it comes to germination. But we do have a beautiful little daisy called a, a, a lasphenia. Golden fields, I think, is the common name. Golden fields or gold fields. Um, it's this beautiful, bright little, happy yellow daisy that I think adds a beautiful pop of color to a lot of gardens. Up at uh, Peaceful Valley Farm Supply, they have all sorts of seed mixtures, including a California native wildflower mix that uh, includes such uh, flowers as the arroyo lupin, pygmy leaf lupin, uh, the California poppy, five spot baby blue eyes. Chinese houses, tidy tips, Godetia, gold fields, mountain flocks, California bluebell, beach okay. evening primrose, the list goes on. A lot of those species I would consider more on the drought intolerant end of some of the annuals. I know I personally planted or seeded in some of those packets into my yard here at Davis and got a lot of things germinating and then a lot of things dying once the drought hit, um, um, once the winter drought hit. And I think that's an important fact to bring up, that just because it's a California native does not mean that it's drought tolerant. Exactly, exactly. And so a lot of these, a lot of these species get tricked into germinating into potentially bad year. And that's one of the main reasons why they want to maintain some of those seeds below ground. How can gardeners increase the chances of germination of wildflower seeds? 
Well, first of all, I think it's important to keep a relatively clean yard. And I know me personally, my yard can get covered with exotic plants that by the by the start of the next season, there's just thatch everywhere. Um, and so clearing out that thatch and creating a nice layer of, of clear soil, or at least cleaning up the yard a little bit will probably enhance uh, the chances of germination. Um, and also just, just sprinkling the seeds right on top of the soil is probably good enough. They don't really need to be buried. Some will get buried naturally, and then they might germinate at a later date. But I think one of the most important things that I've personally found is is to seed right before the start of a big, cold rainstorm. Pretty often in September or early October, we might get these rains that are still kind of warm, but might not really be indicative of a, of a, the onset of winter. And so you don't you don't want to plant then because the seeds won't germinate and then you're just kind of leaving this buffet of seeds out there for, you know, your birds or your ants or, you know, whatever granivore wants to come and eat them. And then you're just losing a whole bunch of seeds. Uh, so you want to plant right before the onset of the rains and make sure you're doing it into a nice, clean soil area. So that first big cold rainstorm might, might not be till uh, November. Yes, Okay, so maybe people have been planting their wildflower gardens a little too early because generally uh, the common advice has always been uh, sow them in fall. Well, maybe it should be modified to sow in uh, mid to late fall. Yeah, and I mean, the the stronger the dormancy, the later they'll germinate too very often. So a lot of the species might might need a little bit of priming uh, beforehand, which which can get a little tricky because you want to put them out there so that they're exposed to that natural variation in temperature because that might help break dormancy down over time. But you don't want them to be sitting out there for so long that they're just going to get carried away by a hungry ant. I've tried boiling legumes. And how do they taste? (laughs) (laughs) No, actually boiling them to break the seed coat and then planting them. How long did you boil them for? I think I just, uh, I didn't even really boil them. If you pour boiling water over them and just let them soak in boiling water for five to 10 minutes and then let them dry out again and put them out there, that could be one method to try. I got to be honest, I tried it with uh, my uh, field study I was doing also out at McLaughlin and I didn't get very high germination. Um, another trick that people use is they, they use sandpaper if you just put a bunch of lupin seeds between two pieces of sandpaper and just kind of scratch at the seeds, that can really help break the seed coat down to try and induce uh, germination. But it's really, as long as you do something to, to break that seed coat, that'll really help ensure that they germinate. And I imagine there's nothing wrong with overseeding wildflowers on a yearly basis. I don't see anything wrong with that. If you want to go for it. <laughs> Just planting a variety of wildflowers from the ones that are, you know, more drought tolerant to less drought tolerant, you know, and, and be be patient with them. They might not show up this year, but they might show up next year. We've been talking with Marina LaForgia. She's with the Plant Sciences Department at UC Davis, has been conducting a study on the drought tolerance of wildflower seeds and it's amazing how much control those little seeds have to know when it's a drought year and to be able to sprout in a wet year you can look for the study in the march 2018 edition of ecology magazine marina thanks for a few minutes of your time today thank you
Coming up, we look at garden events going on today through next Saturday, a look at the weather, and a lot more coming up as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. A lot of garden events going on as uh, spring approaches. Not uncommon. And even today, events going on. For instance, this afternoon, if you're over in the uh, Yountville area in the Napa Valley, from 1 to 3 o'clock, the Master Gardeners over in Napa have a class on growing groceries in your backyard. And that'll be today, 1 to 3, at the Yountville Community Center at 6516 Washington Street in Yountville. Also going on is uh, the uh, Dig into Spring event at Green Acres Nursery and Supply in Folsom. And the Master Gardeners of Sacramento County have an information table set up there from now till 4 o'clock to help answer your garden questions. Maybe you have a problem plant or insect that you need identified, bring in a sample in a sealed container, if you would, please. Uh, And they can help you find sustainable solutions to your gardening questions. Also out there at the Green Acres Folsom today, Steve Zion will be representing Our Water, Our World. He'll be uh, pointing out the uh, garden fertilizers, insecticides, pesticides, fungicides, herbicides that uh, are most most earth-friendly and can do the job. And uh, he'll be out there until, oh, most of the day, he says. He'll be out there. And then next Saturday, he'll be out at Amy Hardware doing the same thing for Our Water, Our World. Next Saturday at Amy Hardware at El Camino near Watt. Actually, on Watt near El Camino. No, on El Camino near Watt. uh, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Coming up Friday, a class on vermicomposting and composting put on by the San Joaquin County Master Gardeners at the Manteca Library at 320 West Center Street in Manteca. It's free, 1030 to noon, Friday, March the 16th. On uh, Saturday the 17th, the uh, Master Food Preservers up in El Dorado County have a class on basic canning and food safety. So if you are learning, want to learn how to can your food safely, do it right. Lots of good tips and tricks. It's a free event. It's 9 to noon at the Bethel Delfino Agricultural Building at 311 Fair Lane in Placerville. That again, next Saturday the 17th. Also next Saturday the 17th, as well as Sunday, March 18th, the Shepherd Garden and Arts Center is having their spring sale at the Old Shep, which is at 3330 McKinley Boulevard in Sacramento. It's a great building that a lot of garden clubs use for their meetings and special events, and it costs money to keep that building up, and the spring sale is one of their big fundraisers. Most of the clubs that participate at the Shepherd Garden and Arts Center will be there, like the Perennial Plant Club, the African Violet Society, the Begonia Society, many more. So there will be a lot of plants, including bamboo, pots, garden items, crafts, jewelry, books, and a lot more next weekend, 10 to 4, at the Shepherd Garden and Arts Center in McKinley Park, across the street from the tennis courts, they're at 3330 McKinley Boulevard. Free admission, free parking. All right, what else is going on next Saturday at the Old City Cemetery at 10th and Broadway? 10 a.m., they're having a little tour of the Hamilton Square Garden. It's a beautiful garden with a lot of perennial plants, 800-plus Mediterranean perennial plants the garden has. Many of them are drought-tolerant. There's usually something putting on a show uh, any time of the year. 
And again, this will be next Saturday, March 17th at 10 a.m. And you meet at the 10th Street Gate. Also keep your eye out for all the native bees that inhabit the Old City Cemetery. Uh, Dr. Gordon Frankie, who uh, runs up uh, the Urban Bee Institute at UC Berkeley, has canvassed the Old City Cemetery and has discovered something like 87 or 88 different species of native bees that call the Old City Cemetery home. Yeah, great place. I mean, when the roses start blooming there come uh, late April and early May, go out there and just uh, enjoy it at the Old City Cemetery. But this uh, tour of the perennial Hamilton Garden uh, will be next Saturday at 10 a.m., and it, too, is free. Also going on next Saturday, the Master Gardeners of Amador County have a free public educational class on seasonal garden planning, basically planning your spring and summer gardens. That'll be uh, take up with the subjects of uh, local vegetables and annual flowers that can be grown during the warm months. They'll have handouts, as well as a planting guide for various elevations and local microclimates. The class will be held in Jackson at the GSA building, which is at 12200 Airport Road in Jackson. It's 9 to noon. That is next Saturday. It is free. And also next Saturday, the uh, Master Food Preservers of the Northern San Joaquin Valley have a class on fermentation, especially sauerkraut and kimchi. And there is a $25 fee, but uh, you're going to learn a lot about fermentation, including uh, sauerkraut, which has been around for quite a while, but also kimchi, a Korean dish made from fermented vegetables. And for more information, you can call 209-953-6100. The class, again, uh, 10 a.m. to 2 next Saturday, and the class will be held. Why didn't I write down where it's going to be? I don't know where it's going to be. I'm I'm guessing it's going to be at the Cooperative Extension Office in San Joaquin County, out near the airport in Stockton, I think. Call them for more information like that. 209-953-6100. If you'd like your garden event mentioned on the air, try to get it to me at least two weeks in advance. Best way to get it to me, email it to fred at farmerfred.com. Please include the date, the time, the title of the workshop or event. Uh, If there's a cost, mention that. uh, What other other information I may need, you know, like like the location, keep that in there. And uh, a website or contact information as well. All right. What about the weather, Fred? Let's do some garden weather. We all want to get out and do stuff and plant and pull weeds and all that good stuff we do this time of year. Actually, it'll be a good week for pulling weeds because it's going to be kind of a wet week. And when it's wet out, weeds come up very easily. Uh, Sunny today, partly sunny on Monday, and then rain moves in Monday night. 60% chance of rain in Sacramento Monday night, 100% on Tuesday, 50% on Wednesday, Showers likely Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as well. Not that cold, thank goodness. In fact, uh, it may not even dip down into the 40s. Uh, It looks like the lows will be in the low 50s uh, tonight and Monday night, and maybe dipping down into the high 40s uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Maybe getting a little bit cooler as the weekend approaches next weekend, but still in the 40s, no danger of frost or anything like that here in the valley, so it's looking good. Uh, But the rain again, we need it, and the National Weather Service calling for one to three inches of rain in our area uh, over the next week, which would be a good thing. And the colder it gets, better chance of snow in the mountains too, which is even better. So 
They keep saying it's going to be a wet week. Let's see if this time it's right. All right. Coming up next here on this very radio station, it is the KSTE Farm Hour. And it's a, it's a news-packed show. Uh, we talk about the March snowpack, which uh, actually got off uh, to a pretty good start in the Sierra in March. Uh, that storm we had almost doubled uh, the available water content in the snow. So we'll talk about that. That, of course, uh, helps the reservoirs in the summertime as that uh, snow melts in the spring and early summer and helps fill the reservoirs, water that'll, that's going to our farms and cities here in California. And then we tackle the imposition of steel and aluminum tariffs by the Trump administration, which may cause serious blowback to California's farm sales this year. It seems anytime tariffs are imposed... There is retaliation by other countries. And the first products that they retaliate against, well, they go after the low-hanging fruit, no pun intended, and that's agriculture. And California agriculture, very susceptible to having a bad time when there are retaliatory tariffs put in place on ag goods. Ag sales as exports in California, 40, 44% of all ag sales in California are headed to the foreign market. So there is a lot of concern about that. And uh, what else are we going to talk about? Oh, yeah, battling powdery mildew on this year's wine grape crop. That's coming up next on the KSDE Farm Hour. Thank you for listening. I do appreciate your support all these years. Without you, there would be no garden show. But what the heck, we'll keep doing it again next week. Don't forget the show is available as a podcast, ksde.com or the iHeartRadio app or your favorite third-party podcast aggregator. We'll do it again next Sunday morning, 10 a.m. to noon, right here on Talk 650 KSTE. Bye-bye.